Welcome to the Firetime Podcast, where it's never hot enough, slow is fast, and the way to win is to make it so stupidly easy to buy from you that there's no excuse not to. I'm your host, Tim Reed. And I'm so excited to be here today. Thank you for listening to the Firetime Podcast. Well, guys, I always say it, but I am especially excited for the conversation that you are about to hear because it is with one of my favorite people, none other than Bradley Hartman. Now, for those of you who don't know Bradley, he has a great backstory. So his business card literally says that he is a recovering purchasing manager. And so Bradley's got a background in new home construction. He built over a thousand homes himself, and then he worked his way into a job as a purchasing manager for Pulte Homes, a giant national home builder. So during that time, he had literally thousands of sales reps coming to him trying to sell him things. And in the last eight years since he's transitioned away from his purchasing manager role, he has actually started to teach and train salespeople to be able to sell to builders and purchasing managers. Now, Bradley hosts a weekly podcast that's called the Behind Your Back Podcast. And I was actually turned on to that by our mutual friend, Tim Rethlake, who has been a guest on this show before. And Tim was telling me, he's like, dude, you got to check out this guy, Bradley. His content is amazing. And so I've been really excited to follow what he has and to get to know him. So in today's conversation, if you do any kind of selling to businesses, this is for you. So if you sell to builders, if you sell to remodelers, if you are a manufacturer that sells to dealers, if you're a manufacturer that sells to distributors, whatever it is, if you sell to businesses, this conversation is for you. Now, when we recorded this episode, I was down in Dallas, Texas for the HPB Expo. And ironically, as we speak right now, I'm back in Dallas attending Bradley's two-day sales course. It's called the Sales Fundamentals Workshop. We just got done with day one. And honestly, it is unreal. You know, a couple things that he brought up that I just think are so awesome and they're going to give you some context to this conversation is, you know, he talks about all of his training in his workshops. If you think about it in a sports analogy, it's the blocking and tackling that makes the difference. So when we get into these conversations, we're talking about simple things and that's what the majority of sales is. It's not big, complex strategies and processes. It is the simple blocking and tackling that you have to practice over and over and over again that helps you win. What we get into in the conversation today is Bradley's written actually a number of books and he's kind of a sought after keynote speaker in the lumber and building materials industry. He's actually a college professor too, but we get into the details of one of his books. His book is called Behind Your Back, and in it, it gives you 52 principles as a salesperson that you can work through to win more sales from builders and purchasers and people that own businesses. So in today's conversation, we kind of go step by step through different parts of this book, and you're going to walk away with some very practical nuggets that you can go put into place right away. So with all that said, we are going to jump into the interview. We'll circle back at the end and talk about it. Joining me from Dallas, Texas is the president of the Behind Your Back sales company, author, speaker, college professor, and recovering purchasing manager. I'm joined by Bradley Hartman. What's up, Bradley? Hey, I appreciate you having me on the podcast. And I think more importantly, I appreciate you flying all the way from Portland down here to Dallas to interview me. Just to interview you. That's <laughs> Just right. for me. 
When does the giving end, Tim? I know, I when know. When does the giving end? Well, the truth is that you drove 30 minutes out of your way to pick me up from the airport, so I feel like I have to interview now as a, you know, just as a consolation. Oh, no, I appreciate it. I'm glad to be here. Glad this worked out. Well, seriously, Bradley, I mean, you have done so much amazing stuff in the lumber and building materials industry, and I'm excited to share your content with the Firetime audience here. But can you bring everybody up to speed on kind of your journey that has taken you from a lowly purchasing manager to El Presidente of the Behind Your Back Sales Company? <laughs> Sure. Yeah. So I grew up, my father just retired after about 40 years in the lumber and building material space. So all through high school and college, I worked in lumber building materials, worked in the yard, mulling windows together, delivering cabinetry and fell in love with the business, uh, majored in Spanish, lived in Guadalajara, Mexico for a while, as you would imagine, Tim, being a tall, skinny ginger. We all speak Spanish. Uh, and then uh, I got out and started working for Pulte Homes, a national home builder based in Chicago. And uh, for eight years, worked in the field, worked my way up, built uh, about over about 1,000 homes, and then moved into an area purchasing role for Pulte. And, uh, and it was that point I saw firsthand some of the challenges that we as buyers had with the way that people sold to us uh, from everything from drywall to fireplaces to HVAC. And um, had some entrepreneurial uh, ambitions and over time realized that there was a real need to kind of connect the gaps between the way we wanted to buy and how a lot of salespeople in our industry wanted to sell. And uh, over time, uh, it's kind of how we got here. Well, I think it's a cool journey. And what I think is awesome is like you've literally seen both sides of it. I mean, you used to be the purchasing manager that people had to sell to. And now you're helping those same salespeople sell to those purchasing managers. It is. And I... And I say this all the time is that, you know, we all want the same thing as consumers. We want to work with experts who we trust, who we feel like they understand us and want to help us succeed. And a lot of times I think some people deliberately downplay some of their own expertise, which is something maybe we can get in down the line, but uh, can't be afraid to be really direct and especially for a guy like you, Tim, you know, you've done it from the ground up. We have all this experience and we got to make sure that we're using that. And typically in the best way we can with his insightful questions to see how we can help people do what they already want to do. Yeah. Well, so one thing that you've done with that, you know, putting the knowledge to use for you is you've written multiple books, but I want to highlight two of them right here. So you've got behind your back and then you've also got the skeptical lumberman. And these have been just amazingly relevant resources that I've found. And I'd love for you to share a little bit, like what was the heart behind those books behind your back and the skeptical lumberman? Yeah. Well, I appreciate you reading. So the behind your back, uh, the subtitle there is uh, very candid and direct as is the book. The subtitle is uh, What Purchasing Managers Say Once You Leave the Room and How to Get Them to Say Yes. So when I was at Pulte, we often talked about what the best salespeople and what some of the worst salespeople did. And we used to talk amongst colleagues. And one day, half jokingly, I said, we should start collecting these stories and publish them. And when someone says, hey, Bradley, I want 15 minutes of your time, I'll say, absolutely. Here's a rule guide on how to make it easy for us to buy. And it was kind of a joke. Until one point, I do believe without alcohol, I went to my boss and said, I have this an idea for a book. And he said, no, you have a huge ego. You're not writing a book. You can't write a book about this. Uh, so it took me a few years later to do it. But the idea was we all want the same things, like I just said. And if both of us on both sides of that desk were more candid, we could both get what we want faster or find that we're not a fit. And that's okay. But we only have a certain amount of time. So that was really the fundamentals behind the behind your back. And it was just a series of things, uh, 52 ways 
uh, small ideas. And again, we wrote and tried to write in small words and small chapters and relatively small ideas, but cumulatively to kind of give a guidebook to how to make it easy for guys in our position who are, who are already buying. By definition, we were purchasing things, how to make it easier for us to do what we wanted to do. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, and your other book is is a lot longer than that. So The Skeptical Lumberman is basically a beginner's guide to social media. And what I think is awesome with it, you know, I use social media all the time, but I still read that book and got a ton of things out of it. It was super, super relevant for basically taking the value that you offer and leveraging it through an online platform. My buddy, Grant Falco, who's been a guest on the show before, he's actually recommending this book in his social media courses that he's teaching. It's that good. That, That means a lot to me. And... Our whole approach here was, and I think I've used, you've found, you have people that come up that are looking for recommendations on what they should do. And while you certainly have some things that you're good at and that you know have worked for you, ultimately you, know, you don't know if it may or may not work for them. So we started, we looked at the top 100 lumber building material dealers in the country and we visited every single one of their websites cataloged what was on each one of those websites. And then we went to every single social media platform to see if they were there. And our approach was, do I have some recommendations? I do. However, whether you're in urban or rural market, you sell to big builders or small builders, whatever that is, there are some fundamental principles that are changing online in how we sell and how we all research when we make buying decisions. Yeah, well, that's really good. And that's one thing I appreciate about you is that you are teaching about something that you have experienced practicing. And so often people are teaching theory, they're not teaching practice. And you know, one thing I love too is in the introduction of that book, you talk so much about making it easy for all the different people involved. And I felt like as soon as I read that, I was like, dude, this guy is speaking my language. And you with your podcast, by the way, you know, Bradley's got an amazing podcast. It's called the Behind Your Back Podcast. But I think the whole heart behind that has been how can you make it easy for people to buy from you? Yeah, and I think that's why your work has really resonated with me is when you see people talking about the same themes in only a slightly different context, but largely to the same large audience. It is really about we're all struggling. There's so much, uh, so much noise out there in the market. And the companies that are able to kind of separate that and simplify it and say, here's the one nugget out of all the garbage that's hitting you every day, all these, these billions of stimuli that's coming at you every day, here's what you're really looking for based upon the questions that you're asking. If I can deliver simplicity through all that, there's immense value in that just on stress and pressure and annoyances that we all deal with. Well, so I think about this a lot. So I have a lot of different sales reps that are coming to sell me things, similar to how when you were at Pulte, you know, sales reps are coming to sell you things. And if I can get a good sales rep that actually understands my business and my problems and can present solutions to them in a way that's easy for me to do business, I'm all in. I love being sold to in those situations, but there's nothing worse than someone wasting your time that hasn't done their research and it's all about them. Isn't that fair? Oh, absolutely. And I think you think about all the, times you've been sold stuff, inevitably you've come across somewhere it feels more like a conversation and there's a natural flow from point A to point B and he has a question and you give an answer and he says, okay, well, if you said that, I'm going to say this. And it's, we talked about this a little bit earlier before the mics went on, it's kind of this decision tree. And I think when it's done really well, it's a natural conversation because they've done enough homework and they know the questions to ask. And they also know which questions not to ask. Because too often we've found that salespeople are asking questions that on the surface seem like good questions, but they lead us in a conversation that doesn't get us further down the line to solving a problem. 
And then at that point, we're just wasting time. Well, and I bet as a purchasing manager, that's sitting there grinding your gears. You're saying, what are you doing wasting my time asking these stupid questions, right? Dude, there's a lot of that. Yeah, yeah. I bet there is. Well, so where I want to go next is this. So in your book, Behind Your Back, you've got four different sections. And basically, the way that you've written the book is you've got 52 principles, more or less, that a salesperson can follow. I mean, you can do it throughout the course of a year, the course of a six months or whatever, but it's 52 principles that you could take um, basically to grow your sales. So I want to hit, of the four sections of your book, one of your rules for each of those sections. And I'd love to have you tee it up and talk about it. Sure. Sounds great. So this first one is actually the mantra for your podcast. So if you're listening to this right now, you need to hit pause. You need to search in your podcast catcher for the Behind Your Back podcast and subscribe to it because it's really valuable. And you're going to hear this phrase every single episode. So every single episode, I hear you say, you are owed nothing. Deliver Deliver value value first. first. It's true. Why is that so important? So the, there's two parts of that, but the, the deliver value first. And I think for sales professionals, we hear this often. And the way that I thought about this when I was on the other side of the desk and all these salespeople who are trying to get in my office and now on the other side, uh, running my own business and pursuing clients and trying to have meaningful conversations is to think of every opportunity in front of a prospect or a client as a paid consultant. And whether it's 15 minutes or an hour, if you're not able to, in theory, send an invoice to that individual and say, hey, I was here, talked about ideas, talked about insights, clarified some things for you, was that worth $100 an hour? Was it worth $1,000 an hour? A lot of times, salespeople don't have that belief. And they said, well, I came by, I wanted to, I wanted to pick his brain, I wanted I to see how I was doing. Dropped off a box of donuts. Dropped and off the hi. box of donuts, right? Okay, the question is, in some cases... Maybe that client or that prospect would value your time together at X number of dollars an hour. But if we firmly don't believe we can deliver that value for that amount of time, don't make the call. Don't knock on the door. Don't do it because otherwise you're interrupting, which is okay. I mean, if we're being really candid about it, part of our job is to interrupt. However, it's okay if you're going to interrupt and you're going to deliver value at least commensurate, if not in multiples of what they're supplying. And the commitment that I always try to make, and whether it's a phone call or whether it's a, you know, a 12-month consulting engagement, is that you are going to make an investment of X and you should expect a return of you know, X times Y. And I think for all of us salespeople, we all need to be thinking that way, but I'll often ask salespeople and I say, so when you go in there, what's your game plan? He'll tell me. I said, okay, when you leave, if you send him a bill for 250 bucks, do you think he would willingly pay that? That's so good. Or would he laugh that. at you? And he's they're like, well, can I get 10 more minutes to think it through my game plan? I said, you can take all the time you want because you haven't made the phone call yet. But I think that's the mentality that we all need to take because right now, and for all of us, time is the most precious commodity. You talk about that. And if we're going to take that from somebody, we damn well better make sure we're going to provide some value in return. Yeah, absolutely. Well, so one of the things I want to point out that you've written about in The Skeptical Lumberman is the idea of high value, low touch. And that's so critical. So I'll just tell you, you know, sales reps come and talk to me all the time and they might bring donuts to the office and that's great. But the reality is that's not value to me. I don't care if you bring donuts to the office. I need things that are going to grow my business. I'd love to hear you talk about the idea of high value, low touch. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you might have to rein me back in because I can get I can get passionate talking <laughs> about this. But if you picture a, a two by two grid or essentially, you know, four squares, 
and you have value on one axis and what I call touch, which is basically how much time it takes to occupy this. Increasingly, we're seeing the best companies have high value, right? Content that's answering questions, solving problems, making us smarter, making us more curious, but low touch. By that, I mean we can engage with this content, we can learn from it, we can share from it whenever we want and wherever we want. And our industry, I will say, feel confident after listening to enough yeah. of your podcast, our industry collectively, we are still very much in the high value, high touch, which is let's set up a two-hour lunch. Uh, let's go to a you know Portland Trail Blazers basketball game. Let's go to a five-hour five round of golf. Yep. Can those things deliver value? Absolutely. And it's still conversations. It's still relationships. However, oftentimes, that's our only way to deliver value. And we're seeing different folks come to the market making buying decisions and being influencers that they don't want to spend four and a half hours on the golf course. And they want to learn and they want to get this information and use it when and where they want. So they don't want that high touch content, high value all day, but we want it when and where, um, especially early on in that buying process. Later on, we're more willing to invest the time. Yeah, that makes so much sense. I know for me, I mean, dude, I can't think of the last time I had four hours to go play around the golf. It doesn't right. exist. Right. It doesn't exist. I, and so for me, like that's a, that's a hindrance if you're going to invite me out to play golf. Like just give me the info I need. Yep. And if it can grow my business, I'm going to get value in it and I'm going to buy from you. But I think that that's so relevant, the high value, low touch. Okay, so we covered right there, deliver value first. So next up in your book behind your back is going to be rule 2.3, which is ace the question, why are you different? So how did this apply when you were a purchasing manager? So I felt when I was an area purchasing manager, that was my responsibility to, if you sold material or labor in a market that I served, it was my responsibility to know who you are and what you could provide. So what that resulted in is me, if you called up once or twice, I was going to give you the opportunity, but it meant that I had smaller chunks of time. So I would typically go either 10 or 15 minutes. And then that's the case. I couldn't have a salesperson coming in and derailing that 15 minutes by trying to build rapport, asking about my kids or talking about the Chicago bears or whatever they wanted. So they would come in and after a while, especially you have some high stress days, yeah. I would be rather direct and I would say, welcome. I'm glad you're here. Please sit down. Don't reference anything you see in this office. Do not try to build rapport. I have one question for you. And that'll determine how the next, you know, 13 months will go. And of course, they'd look at me like, what is this? <laughs> <laughs> and I would kind of smile and be like, relax. I said, this is a question. My expectation would be any salesperson is dying to hear. I'd say real quickly, I'm not buying from you today. I'm buying from one of your competitors. So I want to know from you, how are you better? And how are you different? And I would sit down. And I would shut my mouth. And unfortunately, despite the training that I know that happens way too often, what came out was uh, we're a family owned company. We've been around for a long time. We have honest people. We sell a great product. Uh, we have free estimates. And I would say, well, hey, that's great. I said, is there anything else? I'm like, oh, no, that's kind of it. And I said, well, listen, no one comes in here selling they work with dumbasses who deliver crappy products, don't return phone calls, and work with people who are liars. Full stop. And, I would, and they would look, and I would say, in the absence of value, we're going to talk about price. There you go. So if you want to talk about price, you, are you going to have the best price? Now, sometimes people would say, uh, 
yes, we're going to have the lowest price. I said, so you compete on price. And you can see it going through their head. They're like, how did this happen? Five minutes ago, I came in this room and now we're talking about price. And my point was, if you can't measure the ways that you are better and show me definitive data on how you're different and articulate that well, I don't have time to figure it out for myself. I am in that point confused amongst all the players in the market. I hate to be direct. I hate to be candid. I hate to cut this short, but your 15 minutes is up. If you'd like to reschedule time, prepare to answer this in a better way, I'm probably going to ask for you to email it first, and then you can probably get back in here, but it's probably going to be a couple months. Yeah. Well, what I love with that is that you're totally right that when all things are equal, price is the only factor. So as a sales professional, our job is to show that all things are not equal. And if they are, you better have the lowest price. But you know, like Seth Godin says, the scary thing about a race to the bottom is that you might win. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it really is. So, and I love this because, I mean, so you've, you've got uh, so much awesome sales training. And one of the best things I've heard you say is it needs to be the response of any salesperson. So I don't care if you're in a mom and pop shop selling to Mr. and Mrs. Jones. I don't care if you're selling to a contractor. I don't care if you are in work, you know, working for a manufacturer or a distributor selling to a dealer. If anyone ever tells you this is too expensive, Bradley, what is the first thing you should say? It's only three words. Very easy. It's a call and response. Compared to what? <laughs> oh, dude, I love it. I love it. Hey, Bradley, this is too expensive. Compared to what? Uh, all of a sudden, the, pre- the pressure's on me right. now. We're just further in the conversation. Yeah. What I found is, is when I would tell people, and because oftentimes we have clients that say, okay, work with a, working with a purchasing guy, and he said, I'm too 0.5% high. Do you think he's lying to me? <laughs> I said, I don't know. I've never met him. I go, do you think he's lying to you? He's like, yeah, I do. And I said, okay, well, how do we further that conversation? And we were talking earlier, I've got clients who sell things like drywall. They're selling gypsum with some paper on the outside. Now you can either look at that and say, this is a commodity. We're only competing on price. Or you can say, for people, for builders that build this, there's a bunch of other factors involved from ease of ordering to delivery to where I'm placing the material, right? There's a whole different bunch of factors. However, if you allow the buyer to focus solely on price and you don't say compared to what and make sure we're looking at all these factors and ideally helping shape that conversation towards factors that are really important that you compete on well, now that's not their fault. That's yours. Yeah. Well, and I know for me that, you know, if you do think about the outside factors, so sure there's a product involved, but there's also delivery time, there's installation time frame, there's service, there's warranty, there's all these different things. And I think it's really fair to say that businesses are willing to pay extra if it will make their lives easier in the long run. So I am willing to pay more upfront if it will benefit me long-term. And I, I think that even purchasing managers would say the same thing. Isn't that fair? Oh, absolutely. And we often talk about this It's just asking a simple question in all phases of your personal life, do you, or does anyone you love or anyone you know, buy consistently on all things on price alone? Whether you're buying Fruit Loops or a new bike or a new pair of basketball shoes, you start chuckling to yourself, well, of course not. I can always buy it cheaper. Yep, that's right. But, yeah, the but is, but you want something that has a brand you believe in, has higher quality, you know, has there's an ego factor involved. There's all these other things, yet oftentimes we fall into the trap that, oh no, what I'm selling is a commodity and that's, that's why I have to be the lowest price. 
Yeah, you're absolutely right. So I want to move into the next rule. So this is in the third section of your book behind your back, and it's rule 3.1. And the rule is make me look smart. What does that mean for a sales professional? We always want to make sure that we're doing enough homework ahead of time and thinking through that there's really two broad elements for folks who are making a buying decision. And one of those is professional side. They look at their own goals from a company standpoint, from their customers, from their competition. You can call those kind of the three C's, if you will. And on the other side, it's really, what about themselves personally? What are their personal ambitions? What do they care about? What are their goals? And sometimes there's alignment between their personal goals and their professional goals. Other times, they only are really operating for themselves and I think this, we really need to think about that and how we make that individual be the hero, right, um, in their own story. And I will say increasingly, if we do find, it sounds like we are headed over the next couple of years, some market softening, which is probably overdue, when that happens, and if there's layoffs, if there's anything else, from a human nature standpoint, we end up looking internally first and foremost. Uh, it's human nature to think about survival. So we often saw the best salespeople had a series of questions that were zeroed in on not only the company goals and what they're trying to do from a corporate standpoint, but also that individual. What do they want to do personally? And how can you help them ideally win on both? Yeah. Well, I think that the, the big thing I think about, you told this great story in your podcast a number of weeks ago about a situation, or maybe this is in, I think this is in a Skeptical Lumberman book actually, but you talked about a situation where I think it was like a drywaller sent you an article that had to do with a housing recession. Yep. And you got sent the article, you read it, and you presented it in a meeting and looked really good. And you took the credit for it. it was a, <laughs> talk, talk about the story. It was the depths of the Great Recession. So call it 2009, 2010. And a drywall company out of Minnesota, Mike, started building this relationship from scratch. And it was where actually the price of drywall is in free fall. No one really knew where it was at. And he called me up and he had just started the relationship. And he said, hey, I'm going to send you something. I think it's going to be helpful for you. It's a candid look. This is not publicly available information. I don't even know if that was true or not. But it was a <laughs> prospectus, I believe it was from J.P. Morgan Chase, that was sent out. That was kind of a market synopsis of what was happening in real time. And I got it. And this answered a lot of the questions and kind of gave a prognosis of what might happen in the subsequent two quarters. So I read through it and it was probably, I don't know, a dozen pages or so. Made a couple notes. I called him back and I said, just curious. I don't even know what these things mean. What do you think? Uh, he had worked for a national manufacturer of drywall. He gave me some answers. Two days later, we had one of these, whoever's buying drywall across the country, we have a call. And they're asking questions and no one really knows. And I just kind of had a few well-timed excerpts on some research that I was doing and where I was finding it. And all of a sudden, these guys were like, all right, we need to put together a drywall task force. Uh, Bradley, we'd like you to lead it. Uh, you're obviously, you know exactly where the pulse is at. The Midwest. <laughs> and all this happened. And I went back and I told Mike. Now, what did that do to our relationship? This guy is giving me tools that personally made me look good and also helped our team look smart from a national basis. So what happened shortly thereafter? Yeah, and that wasn't the only reason. He also gave really competitive pricing, but he, he went from having 0% of our work to having 100% of it in that market. And again, I don't want to simplify it. That wasn't it. 
but it was one of the tools that he used that no one else had used, kind of either before or since. Well, it's a big factor. And I think that idea of making me look smart is so important. And this is true, whether you're selling to a homeowner or a builder or even a dealer, there are things you can do to make that person look smart, right? If it's a husband and his wife and the husband wants to get this fireplace, there are things you can do to make him look good in front of his wife. And it goes back to what you talked about delivering value first. You have to be going into it, looking at what's valuable for them. But so often salespeople go in with only an agenda about them. They're talking about their products. None of it has to do with the good of your business. And I I think about this, you know, our mutual friend, Tim Rethlake, he issued a challenging word to sales reps saying, if you were fired tomorrow, would any of your clients pick you up as a consultant? And honestly, I go through the sales reps that sell to me. There's not many. (laughs) There's not many. That that is an extremely well said, like a litmus test for what I was, I probably rambled on for about 500 words, what he said in one sentence, which is, yeah, can you charge hourly for your ideas and insight and your assistance? Yep. If you can't and you willingly accept that, well, the first part is awareness. What do you do to change that? But I want to go back to kind of that, The if you look at the kind of the reason behind, there's a really influential book that I've read uh, several times and I continue to get insight from it. It's from, um, I forget, I'm blanking on his first name, uh, Cialdini. It's called Persuasion. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Robert, Robert, Robert Cialdini. Cialdini. And he identifies six factors based on human nature that improves persuasion and drives influence. And one of those is reciprocity. And when someone goes out of their way to help you, to make you look good, part of your core, part of what makes you human is that you want to, in essence, repay that debt. And it's typically not that rational But when you have the value that the guy Mike provided for me on that drywall front and making me look good in a time when, you know, Pulte was laying off 80% of all the people that worked there. Yeah, no kidding. Dude, that's a lot of chips he just shoved in front of the table that I want to basically account for in either the short or the long run. Yeah. Well, I think that's so good. You know, make your clients look smart. Make them the hero of the story. It's not about you. It's about them. Okay. So next up is from the last section of your book behind your back. And this is rule 4.7 and it is read to lead. What's that mean? I'm a big believer in taking the small effort to learn what other people have already learned. And a lot of those answers are out there. And I'm a big believer in trying to find answers out myself. And while mentors are extremely valuable, can help guide you, uh, just understanding what other books people have read. And that's why in every single one of my podcasts, I ask people, say, hey, what, what are the books that really have influenced you or you'd recommend to a, every senior in high school? And making sure whether or not you like to read now with audible.com through Amazon or whatever, we can consume books or even go into the public library which I believe are one of the most underutilized resources on the planet, these books are free. If you want to be great or you want to be improve where you are, part of those is how do you improve and taking the time to read the lessons other people have had. Mm-hmm. And I think there's more options to do that than ever. That's so good. And so one of the things I love that you've written about is that most people live in an echo chamber. And so we need sales professionals that can think outside the box and be reading and consuming these different sources of information to share with other people. And I know, you know, the, the truth is with most of the sales reps that come in and talk to me, if I were to ask them, Hey, what's the last business book you've been reading? I'd get crickets. Oh, I haven't read a book in 20 years. I mean, honestly, that's the answer I get from a lot of them. But if you can get someone like I I found this just for me personally is, you know, I, I try to read a lot and listen to podcasts and stuff like that. 
and a meeting will come up and I'll maybe throw a little nugget out that I just read in a book. And just like you in that meeting with the, you know, the, the purchasing team with your drywall stuff, I will suddenly look really smart. Now I'm not that smart, but I just, I read a book and and so it stuck with me. But I I love that idea that if you are going to lead, man, you better be a reader. Yeah. And I firmly believe that especially sales skills, like a lot of skills, these are perishable, meaning you can learn them. That's really good. You can apply them. That's really good. And you can find, hey, these really work. And actually, I won't go into detail here, but there's one element as we were selling for the sales fundamentals workshop. We just had had a handful of people and companies who they commit about 95%. I was like, there's something we're not doing. There's something small. And I was racking my brain and it just kind of popped to me and we applied it. We followed up with them and we closed all of them within like four days. And I was talking to Jenny who's on the podcast as well. And I said, here's the irony. This is exactly what we're going to be talking about in the workshop is that some of these skills are perishable and you can have 90% of your sales pitch, right? And the way you're going online and off, but if you're missing one element, it's not going to work. And if we don't find a ways to keep these things in front of us and keep them memorable, we can find ourselves spinning our wheels for months or years because these are perishable skills. And that's where I wanted to go next. So you have a sales fundamentals workshop that you run every year in Dallas, Texas. I'm actually going to it in a couple of weeks. And and I feel like, man, it's just, it's so awesome for teams to send their best salespeople to training. It sounds so simple, but like most companies don't train their people. And I, I just love to hear you talk about you know, why is it so important? I mean, you just said that sales skills are perishable. I've never heard it put that way, but it's dead on. Why is training so important for sales folks? Yeah. How do we kind of keep things front and center? And especially at the beginning of the year, it's easy to get so distracted with all the things that are competing for our attention and our time personally and professionally. So part of it is having an offsite and had a couple of clients that really were found it really valuable to have it offsite that they had to fly people to it. And I would probably say 90, 90% of all the people that are coming are flying in from some other location. So part of it is just getting away to truly focus on drawing the line between our choices and our goals and how it dives into our weekly game plan and how this is a way that we can kind of have this a positive feedback loop of looking at our goals, making choices during the week, being really intentional with our time and consistently following up in that way. Uh, the other part is when I go and I invest in my own coaching and my own training is I also get a ton of value from other really smart people that are there. And part of what we're trying to do is over a two day event, really make it a community and have the different individuals that come across from the country meet one another and share their experience and build new relationships and do it in a way that Training doesn't have to be boring and long. We can have fun with it, and there's a lot of different ways to do it. Well, and I love the way that you've explained it is that it's a workshop about blocking and tackling, right? We're not getting into crazy offensive schemes or anything like that. It's blocking and tackling. And honestly, man, if you think about sales, that's what sales is. Sales is doing the basics over and over and over and over again. And when you don't know what to do, you go back to the basics. Isn't that all it is? Yeah. What we heard over and over when we talked about why... uh, why our core clients wanted to have this kind of two-day event. They said, it's not that next level stuff. It's the consistency and the focus. And I think importantly, the framework around it and a system that makes it easy for them to follow through consistently and share what they're doing and why, not only for themselves, but also for their manager and for their team, 
so they can work a little bit more collaboratively. So we're not just, you don't find ourselves just driving the streets randomly looking for a potential lead. We're really intentional with it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, so one of the big things that you're going to do in this workshop is going to be sales practice. Why is live sales practice so important? We find consistently the majority of salespeople have never seen themselves on camera. (laughs) Now, you doing your podcast, you do your own videos, everyone goes through this period where you're like, that's what I look like? That's what I sound like? That's what I sound like? (laughs) And then what do you do? You, part of it, part of it is it accepting? I'm like, is my voice really this gravelly? All right, apparently it is. Part of it is self-awareness and I think being okay with who you are. The other part is saying, uh, I, I jokingly did a podcast a couple of weeks ago. There's one sentence, I used the word leverage four times. And Jenny's like, why'd you say leverage so many times? I'm like, I don't know. I'm struggling for words. I'm trying to look smart. I don't know. I could have just said use. You are especially in this environment, you're finding ways to be really critical about yourself. And when you have an audience like you do, Tim, you're going to find that way out. And unfortunately, a lot of folks, they're not really given that opportunity. And I know people don't like role-playing. And I know people don't like having a smartphone shoved in their face when I say, you're a sales professional. You've been doing this for 20 years. I know you don't need this, but just for giggles, tell me, how are you better and how are you different than the competition? Go, and I'm capturing all of it on my smartphone. And inevitably... You've got a guy who's been doing it for that long say, you know what? It's been a long time since I've seen what I look like when I do that and I struggled and I want to do it again. I said, great. You know what? We can do as many times as you want. But again, perishable skills and this is a script. And um, so that's why we really think it's, it's that important. That's why we're having a full-time videographer there for two days and we're going to collect quote unquote, you know, game footage that we're going to share uh, share with, not publicly. It's not going to be up on YouTube. We're going to share with the people that are there and really help them improve. And sometimes it's that short-term pain that can immediately result in long-term changes. Well, I'm with you 100%. So I, I am serious when I say that I think the highest impact change you can make with your sales team, if you want immediate results, is start practicing with them on a weekly basis for an hour. I mean, I'm not joking. If your salespeople have never practiced live, with full confidence, I think that you can double their sales output in a year with regular practice. You know, I love that you're talking about this because literally, this is probably four days ago, me and uh, one of my sales team members, we spent two hours working on the greeting. So we have a retail store, customer walks in the store, how do you greet them? We spent two hours. You know, the greeting takes a minute to two minutes. We videoed it over and over and over. We did audio only over and over and over. We had check marks on a sheet where we had to put a check mark for every uh, for every filler word, for every run on sentence, for everything that didn't make sense. And man, there was a lot of check marks on some of these, but we did it over and over and over. And again, without the camera being on you or without recording it, you have zero self-awareness. And the truth of the matter, and this is, I mean, I'm pointing the finger at myself too, because I crash and burn with this sometimes, is that I guarantee every single one of you thinks you're better than you are. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and there's a, there's a, a bias uh, that I read about, and it's the uh, illusory superiority bias. And really, that sounds more academic than it is. The illusory means that it's an illusion. Superiority means you think you're better than you are. And I'll do this occasionally when we're doing speaking events, and I'll, I'll ask anyone to just think about on a scale of zero to 10 how you would rate your driving ability. Now, I'm definitely like a six. (laughs) Yeah, I'm a nine. Uh, And we'll go through and what we will see 
is that, and again, we often, <laughs> our audience is definitely skewed towards male. Uh, the average ends up being typically somewhere around like 8.75. And then we talk about how, obviously, this is irrational, right? There's a normal bell curve, this normal distribution in this room. And the illusory superiority bias says we struggle with identifying places where we need to change for ourselves, but we're really strong at identifying those and others. Yeah. The point is if we can be candid with each other and we can help each other improve, we can overcome some of that because none of us, we're not nearly as good as we think we are. And unfortunately, we have some people who have the most experience and wisdom to share are often unwilling to go through that pain to see how they can improve, especially on the front end of that sales cycle. Well, so I have a question for you then. It's really candid is, can a salesperson be their best without practice? No, I, I immediately, I would think that's akin to asking a professional basketball player, hey, what, what happens if just for one year you just show up to a game? There's a lot of games. There's 82 of them. You're not making the playoffs. And the answer is, no, you got to do a lot of other things to stay in top physical and mental shape. And I'm certainly not one of them. And maybe there's one or two on the planet who have so much gifts and ability that it comes that natural and that easy. I know I'm not one of them. Everyone else is that we have to practice. And again, it's like a muscle. It's going to atrophy. We talk about you know skills being perishable. Um, it, everything is practice. Part of the struggle is what makes you better. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I love you give that analogy about practice because what I tell my teams all the time, you know, we do a lot of sales role playing. I mean, it's just part of our normal, consistent routine. And even the team members that I have, they hate doing it. Salespeople always squirm whenever you start to do practice because it's embarrassing, it's awkward, it's not like the real world. And believe me, I've heard every complaint about it. You know, it's not like the real thing. I'm way more natural in front it's of customers. It's different when you do it, Tim. You know, number one, no, you're not more natural in front of customers. You just think you are. But the reality is like, you know, I live in Portland, Oregon. I'm a huge Trailblazers fan. So you think about this. The Trailblazers practice during the week. And when they're scrimmaging, the defense knows the plays the offense is calling. So it's awkward. It's not like the real world. But you know what? It's the closest you're going to get outside of a game. And right. you better take advantage of it. Sales practice is no different with your team. They know the pitch. They know the play. But you know what? It doesn't matter. It's the only practice you're going to get outside of showtime. Yeah. The reality is you can either screw up and miss an opportunity in front of a colleague who, let's assume, he likes and trusts you and wants to help you do better. Or... We can do it with a real-life customer who's got a lot of different options generally in the market. That's a choice. That's a choice you make. Yeah. And I know I'd rather screw up in front of a colleague than lose commission dollars in front of a client. All day. Yeah. All day. All day. Well, Bradley, this has been awesome, man. You are given some great wisdom and value. Where can people get a hold of you? Yeah. So our website is behindyourbacksales.com. Uh, we got the podcast, and I know we've been sharing audience members and you joined me for a, a yeah. podcast where we, we talked about sales and leadership and personal productivity through the lens of uh, the NBA. That was honestly one of the coolest conversations talking about leadership through the lens of the NBA. I love that. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. So we did that. So the Behind Your Back Sales podcast, uh, find more information there, the behindyourbacksales.com. And um, yeah, this is a, it's a tight-knit community and the messages you're sending to him are so relevant and so on theme to what we're talking about. Uh, I think the audiences both get a lot of value from both. So I appreciate you and your effort. Yeah, you got it, man. So to sign us off, give us the mantra for your podcast. I think it's so relevant. You are owed nothing. 
deliver value first. There it is. Thanks, man. Thank you. Well, you heard it right there from Bradley. You are owed nothing. Deliver value first. You know, I love that conversation. I think that the principles in it are so worthwhile. You know, if you are doing any kind of selling, you cannot take for granted that people deserve to buy from you. As a sales rep, you are owed nothing. You can't assume that the customer owes you their business. What you have to do is deliver value over and over and over again, and you got to do it first. So think about that. The next time that you're making a sales presentation or advising a solution for a client, you got to deliver that value. And and you got to think hard about value. I mean, if you tell someone, well, I've been in business for 30 years. So what? That's not valuable. Well, we sell the best brands. So what? Everybody says that. You got to think hard about what is the specific value you offer that you can prove. You know, maybe it's that we have an on-time complete percentage of 94% or maybe it's that we go out to your house ahead of time to take a look at things before any money is deposited so that way you know that it's done right. Those things are valuable for customers. The next one that we talked about is why are you different? This is something Bradley always talks about. It's it's pretty hilarious that when he was a purchasing manager and someone would come in to sell to him, you know, he would cut straight to the chase and say, look, I'm busy. You're busy. I just have one question for you. Why are you different? And he said that most people totally crashed and burned and that they were not equipped to handle it. But the truth of the matter is you should master that question. Why are you different? Because when all things are equal, price is what makes the decision. So you have to prove that you are different and that all things are not equal. It'd be worth spending some time with your team thinking about why are you different? You know, get an answer that everybody knows that you can repeat on command without being flustered because knowing why you're different and being able to articulate it in a very short time frame, like less than 10, 15 seconds, is absolutely a way to open a door with a potential client. You know, the next thing that we mentioned was make them look smart. If you're doing any kind of selling to a business, you have insight that they don't have. Chances are that you are selling to some of their competitors. Chances are that you're seeing more of the market than they get to see. And that information is valuable. If you can give them information that makes them look smart, whether it's to their clients, whether it's to their customers, to their boss, to their coworkers, if you make them look smart, you will start to gain a relationship where they'll look to you like the trusted advisor. And this is a really powerful position to be in because they're going to keep coming to you since you are invested in helping them look smart and grow their business. Now, lastly, he talked about the fact that, you know, readers are leaders. And this is something, I mean, I know that not everybody out there reads, but the fact that you're listening to a podcast or hopefully you're getting in touch with an audio book, you know, the idea that if you are going to lead and grow, you got to continue to learn. I mean, if you are a leader and you want your company to grow 20% this year, you yourself better be growing 20% because as a leader, you are the lid on your company's growth. They cannot grow further than you. And so it's up to you to continue reading, listening to podcasts, pouring into resources so that you yourself are always growing. And that way your company can follow where you lead. Well, I hope this content was valuable for you. I'm so stoked to have Bradley in the podcast. He's a good friend and is just making some amazing content. So with all of that said, I hope you guys have a great rest of your week. We will see you next time on the Firetime Podcast. Peace. Thank you for listening to the Firetime Podcast. To learn more, visit the website, itsfiretime.com. Music from this episode was written and recorded by In Bloom out of Portland, Oregon. 
We thank you for listening to the Firetime Podcast, where it's never hot enough, slow is fast, and the way to win is to make it so stupidly easy to buy from you that there's no excuse not to. We'll see you next time.